This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. Our guest this week is Jim Matheson, CEO of the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 330 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with NRECA's Jim Matheson next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. America's crop insurance industry, providing individualized protection on more than 330 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Over 42 million Americans in 47 states depend on rural electric cooperatives for their electric service. After serving seven terms in Congress, Jim Matheson took over as CEO of the NRECA in 2016. Many farmers and ranchers relieved to see the 2018 Farm Bill approved last year. However, significant funds for the legislation came from resources previously allocated for a cushion of credit program for electric service providers. Matheson says it's just one less financial tool for cooperatives. Well, the change in the cushion of credit program that was in the Farm Bill took away an opportunity for the future that was of great value to our members. Uh, that being said, the compromise language in the final version of the Farm Bill was a lot better for our members than what we started with in terms of at least giving members some opportunity to unwind their positions in the cushion of credit program. It was surprising, though, that uh, the, the change of the program, you know, normally when Congress changes something, they do it on a going forward basis, but they grandfather in everything that existed up to that point. In this case, they went retroactive backwards as well in terms of changing the terms on investments co-ops had made in the cushion of credit program. But like I said, at the end of the day, uh, the compromise language allowed uh, most co-ops reasonable flexibility to unwind their positions. Does it make you vulnerable? Oh, I don't think it makes us vulnerable. It's one less tool in the toolbox we had before. But uh, our co-ops, uh, from a financial perspective, if you look at the rating agencies uh, on Wall Street, the electric cooperative industry is rated very strong in terms of its risk profile. And we have uh, adequate access to capital from a number of sources. So with regard to the Farm Bill, there are rural development funds there, and there are some funds for broadband. But with regard to the, the electric transmission in the country, what are upgrades that are needed that maybe are included in the Farm Bill and others that aren't? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's this investment in, in fiber capability that's not for retail broadband. It's really you need fiber within your electric system because to be a modern electric utility, you need that communications capability to have data transfer throughout your system you're serving. And so uh, the Rural Utility Service of the Department of Agriculture has historically helped fund investments in that type of grid uh, investment that creates a more reliable and resilient grid with fiber from a communication standpoint. That's a really important part of what's in the Farm Bill. And by the way, electric co-ops have been making significant investments in that in terms of their grid infrastructure, but they're not done yet, and we're going to continue to pursue it. Is the fiber meant for the service of electricity alone, or is there opportunity there 
for broadband service. Well, you have just raised the, the great opportunity here because, yes, while we invest fiber to uh, make sure we have a, a modern, efficient utility system, uh, it, assuming it's designed correctly, that fiber can also be used to leverage uh, opportunities for retail broadband for end users, whether it's the co-op providing it or whether they lease out their fiber to another entity that provides that retail service to uh, an end user. There's no question that an investment in fiber for the grid enhances the opportunity for retail broadband, and we're really excited about that. You know, there was a day when my granddad was young that uh, electric service was a luxury. Not everyone had it. Thanks to the cooperative service, more and more people were able to be served. Now we consider it essential. With regard to broadband, there was a time that I believe people thought that it was a luxury. Is it an essential utility now? I believe broadband is an essential utility at this point. I don't know how you can function in the 2019 economy in the United States of America without it. And so the the comparison to rural electrification that happened back in the 1930s, what, it's a fair comparison. These are sparsely populated areas where the economics are tough to justify for the for-profit companies. That's why rural electrification happens through the cooperative business model. Uh, that's why we think rural co-ops could play a significant role for rural broadband as well. Don't, don't let me overstate it. Broadband service is different from providing electricity. I understand there are differences. But that basic foundational aspect of the economics and sparse population areas, that's just the same as electricity in the 1930s. Now, you referenced a 24 million figure, and I'll come back to this, because when uh, Ag Secretary Purdue was in testimony, he was talking about some maps that were being offered by a government agency that was showing the number of people who were served by broadband, and he said it was nothing more than fake news. Do you think we have an accurate handle on the underserved in the country? We do not have an accurate handle on the underserved in the country when it comes to broadband. The maps are wildly inaccurate. By the way, these maps are uh, provided, they're self-reported by the providers in those areas. And those providers that may have invested in, let's say, copper and old technology, really slow dial-up, they don't want anyone to come in and build real broadband there. So they have they actually have an incentive to over-report what they're doing anyway. So this is the Secretary has pointed out a very important issue that as a country, if we want to make sure people in America have access to good broadband, my gosh, we ought to be working from accurate data to help make those decisions. And right now, the maps we've got that, that show various degrees of service in various parts of our country, they're not accurate at all. Well, inside the 18 Farm Bill, there are funds for broadband, but also... Illinois Republican Rodney Davis and Virginia Democrat Abigail Spanberger sending a letter to some key members of the House Appropriations Committee asking them to add funding for rural broadband Internet infrastructure. Yeah. Now, is, is this a part of the Farm Bill or is this yet another initiative uh, to, to work toward this, this goal? It's part of a USDA program. Of course, you know, the, the Farm Bill authorizes these programs, Then, but the Congress gets to appropriate money each year. And we, we certainly supported that letter and encouraged members of Congress to sign on to it as well. Look, this is a long-term play. I get it. But uh, to the extent that we consistently fund uh, these programs and show successes in terms of building out broadband, I think you're going to continue to see bipartisan support in Congress. That's, that's the interesting thing about broadband in rural America. As much as Congress is now so characterized by this polarized dynamic between the two parties bickering with each other, it seems like everybody agrees rural broadband is actually a good idea, and, and, and that's why we feel strongly about it. But it's a bigger priority for the family who doesn't have it. 
who oh, has yeah. to take their their kids to town outside a fast food restaurant or somewhere else to do their homework. It's a big issue when health care is not available because the, the local clinic can be connected. This is bigger than just being able to sit in front of a computer. We're talking about services here. Now, we're talking about basic education opportunities. We're talking about access to health care. And we're talking about uh, if you want to have economic development, have businesses locate in rural areas, they're not going to come without broadband. They're just not. So we're talking about all kinds of opportunity to uh, to benefit and to grow and thrive in the in in, in the future. Uh, these rural communities that don't have broadband are really put at a significant disadvantage. Now, can the NRECA help? Well, first of all, I think our membership is already helping. We've got over a hundred co-ops around the country that are moving ahead with providing retail broadband to end users. Uh, we have more co-ops looking at it right now. It doesn't mean every one of our co-ops across America is best situated to offer it, but a number of them are. They take it as an important part of their mission to serve their communities. You know, we are a lot more than poles and wires companies that just produce electricity. For our, uh, We feel like we are part of the community because we're owned by the communities we serve, and it's important for us that our consumers have access to broadband as well. So that's what our members are doing, and as a national association, NRECA is advocating in the policy arena for any type of good uh, funding opportunities and all also for regulatory relief to enhance the deployment of broadband. I'm told by leaders of the House and the Senate that they really don't pay a lot of attention to the budget that comes from the White House. But when we look at the president's budget, there were some proposals there that were of concern to NRECA. And a part of that was selling perhaps TVA and some other PMAs. Yeah, we think that's a bad idea. And you're right, it comes in the president's budget that is often routinely ignored by Congress, not just this president. This goes back. Obama did the same thing. So did Bush. So did Clinton. You know, they've, a lot of them have picked on the federal power marketing agencies as some way to make their budget look a little better by selling off those assets. But the good news is, is on a strong bipartisan basis, Congress has never bought into this. They recognize it's a bad idea. They recognize they do it. It's going to raise uh, electric rates uh, on millions of rural Americans, and uh, and so, but. The fact that it's on a piece of paper and proposed every year is always going to be cause for concern for us. And so we do not dismiss it just because the president's budget may be routinely ignored by Congress. We take it real seriously because, you know, I, I, I said, I've said a couple of times, our cooperatives are owned by the consumers they serve. We can't throw these economic impacts on shareholders, on Wall Street, or anything. Anything that happens to co-ops, is directly, those costs are directly borne by our consumers. So let's rebut perhaps some of the suggestions in that proposal. Uh, the report says a majority of the nation's electricity needs are met by for-profit investor-owned utilities, and the sale would limit the risk to taxpayers. Well, I, I just fundamentally disagree. First of all, it's true that the investor-owned utilities serve more of America than we do. As I mentioned, electric cooperatives serve about one in eight Americans. So the investor-owned utility sector does serve more Americans. We happen to serve the areas where the for-profits wouldn't go where these rural areas where the economics weren't very good. That's why it didn't happen. And I might add, we continue to serve areas where 93% of all the persistent poverty counties in America are actually served by rural electric cooperatives. So anytime anyone puts out a proposal that would increase cost to our consumers, we take it real seriously and we push back as hard as we can. So let's say if there is another administration and another Congress that wanted to try to accomplish this, 
Would it be done legislatively? Can it be done through the regulatory process? Uh, is it something that there would members would have an opportunity to vote on? Oh, it would, yeah, it would have to be done legislatively, and we would we would pull out all the stops and 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 make and and do our best effort to stop that from ever happening. As I said before, we have had consistent, strong, bipartisan support of our position on this. But I take it real seriously, and all of our membership does too. Even though we 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 succeed on this issue, we're never going to fall asleep on it. Let's highlight another issue that came from the Department of Agriculture: four hundred eighty-five million dollars of investment for rural electric systems in 13 different states, and specifically $7 million plus for smart grid technologies. Yes. Where does this fall, and how does this help? Well, uh, this is part of ongoing farm uh, USDA programs through the Farm Bill. On a consistent basis, uh, the, the, the Rural Utility Service, which is a part of the USDA, offers these financing opportunities for these investments. It's really one of the best things going on in the federal government. I often say the RUS is like a, an infrastructure bank. It, our, our credit rating is so good in terms of we almost never default our loans, so the taxpayer actually makes money on this in the long run for RUS loans, and these are investments in rural infrastructure, and that's part of that program. And this periodically, they make these announcements. $485 million is a lot of money. It's investing in better technology for smart grid, it's, which gives us operational efficiencies. It's investing in upgrading our systems so they're more reliable. So if we can build stronger poles, we can withstand weather events in a better way. So we're always looking to invest in our system to make it more reliable and also keep it affordable. So if I'm checking off the budget list, and I understand that the Department of Agriculture is making that available, you might consider that the job is done. What's not being met financially now? How could an infrastructure bill help our electric cooperatives and service to rural areas? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, it's important to deploy fiber to make the uh, for smart grid application to allow a utility system to operate more efficiently. We've got far more investments to go. And the RUS, yes, that existing program helps with the smart grid investment. But if an infrastructure package was able to accelerate investment in that area, there's plenty of opportunity for electric cooperatives to benefit from that, and their consumers would benefit from it as well. By the way, I have to say, we're also interested in any investment in rural America that helps our communities, you know. Uh, Rural co-ops, as I, I, I probably said it before, we, we're interested in the consumers we serve in all aspects of their economic life. And so if we can advocate for an infrastructure package that helps rural America in other ways, we're all for it. Jim, how important is coal to this country? You know, uh, as, as anyone who's followed the fuel mix in America knows, the, the use of coal to generate electricity has, has declined over the last few years. That includes for cooperatives as well. Primarily, that's been driven by, by the markets. You know, technology's created a new way to secure natural gas, the, the fracking technology that was deployed roughly 10 years ago. Natural gas prices have dropped substantially. Supply is up. And so the utility sector has been making the economic decision, quite frankly, to shift more and more production to natural gas, uh, and that has resulted in a reduction in coal. That doesn't mean coal is irrelevant today. It still represents some reasonable percentage of the overall fuel mix, but it's definitely declined due to the uh, the remarkable circumstances that fracking has created for this industry. I raise that point just simply transitioning to the next thought in the fact sure. that climate change is being discussed. It's an issue in Congress now. No mm -hmm. doubt it's going to be an issue as we work toward the race for the White House. And then there is the proposal that is called the Green New Deal that Representative Costa of California on this program called Aspirational. What are the areas that you're most concerned about as we talk about 
uh, energy generation and our carbon footprint. Sure, and and I and and this discussion is going to happen, and I think that the the framework with which we want to participate in that conversation is pretty straightforward. We think that any energy proposal, be it about climate change or any other energy proposal for that matter, we ought to look at how does the proposal affect the reliability of electric service from an operational level. In other words, in America, we kind of take for granted every time you flip the switch, the light goes on. And are there proposals out there that are going to affect that level of reliability? And then second, and just as important, I didn't list them in any rank order here, is what does it mean in terms of cost? Both the transitional cost to get to a new situation and also the ongoing operating costs. As I said before, we are consumer-owned. We don't have shareholders who can absorb costs. Uh, we represent 93% of the persistent poverty counties in America. We're always concerned about the affordability of the electricity we serve to our consumers. So that's the voice we want to lend to a climate change conversation is how do any of these proposals affect reliability and affordability from a consumer standpoint? And we think we have a real credible voice to do that because we're spread across this entire country, as I said, 47 of the 50 states. We've got cooperatives in all kinds of different geographic regions, different circumstances, different fuel mixes. So I think we bring a real holistic approach to electric generation in general and what it means to people on the ground. So of the sum of the electrical grid in the country, what's our source by percentage? I know for co-ops, we're roughly 30% natural glass, about 40% coal, and about the balance is in renewables. Uh, that, that may be for the country a little different percentage than us, but that's roughly where we are. A part of the Green New Deal suggested that they wanted the, the nation's power source to be net zero. Can we move to those new sources, leaving away some that we have now, and still provide reliable uh, energy for the country? Well, first of all, that's the right question to ask, reliable, and I'd also add affordable. You know, I I forgot to mention that fuel mix before the reliance on nuclear in this country, too. Roughly 20% of the electricity in this country comes from nuclear power plants today as well. Uh, uh, Look, I think that those are the questions you've got to ask. How can you have a fuel mix that creates a reliable circumstance 24-7-365? That's that's the question that we need to answer in terms of how we move forward in terms of what that fuel mix is going to be. We still believe a diverse fuel mix is the is the best risk approach to any electric generation uh, scenario that's out there. Uh, that's what we're going to continue to advocate for. But you've you've asked the right question. How do these proposals? What, whoever's making whatever proposal, how is it going to affect reliability? And I would add, how is it going to affect cost? So, what are the new sources that there, that are there or renewable sources that seem to show the most promise to you? Well, there's no question that the cost of solar and the cost of wind have have uh, declined uh, by a, a pretty steady basis over the last few years, and they're becoming more economic as a piece of the fuel mix. Uh, the, the the major uh, unknown that could make it even more of a uh, a reliable. Uh, source electricity over a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year period is storage. And if battery storage uh, could be uh, advanced in a way where it's both economic and technically feasible on a large scale, um, that's where you could change the dynamic even more so. But the developments have clearly had uh, both solar and wind move in a more uh, economic fashion than before. And quite frankly, electric co-opters have made significant investments in both of those resources. At the AgriFulse Food and Farm Summit that was held in Washington, we were looking at agriculture in 2040. 
And one of the statements of, uh, of technology was that battery life is going to become better. And there would be obviously a transition to more electric use of uh, vehicles and farm machines. And, and obviously broadband use is not going away. So it appears to me that this, these are critical questions now to ask, not just for the country, but certainly for rural America. And that affects you. No doubt. Uh, you know, uh, when it comes to electric vehicles, uh, the, the question is always how much range can you get on one charge? And if you're in rural areas, we've got longer distances to travel. Uh, that range question becomes all the more important than someone living in an urban area. And secondly, if you want to take it to the also agriculture industry and farm equipment, that's another question. Is there ability to have those viable from an electric vehicle standpoint uh, in terms of the, the, the heavier use of agriculture equipment. But those are central questions to the future of uh, rural America. Jim, to the extent that electrification is going to happen, um, you know, advances in that area could be really significant for the rural population. Jim, are there other questions or points that you would make in this climate change debate? You know, I, I, I would really come back, actually, it wouldn't be another point. It's really come back to what I said before. I think all these conversations... Uh, Part of that conversation always has to be about how does it affect reliability, how does it affect cost. I think we can be an important voice from the electric cooperative perspective to contribute to that conversation. Well, coming up at the end of the month, you've got some NRECA members that are going to be in Washington for your legislative conference. What do you expect to come to town with? Well, we're going to have over 2,000 people from across America come to Washington for our legislative conference. It's, it's part of who we are. We believe in showing up. Uh, we have strong relationships with uh, our elected officials, and we do this in a nonpartisan way. We reach out to everybody in the policy world and make sure they understand where we're coming from because we are not uh, groups of lobbyists from Washington, D.C. These are, these are people from the communities where these elected officials serve those constituents. And it's an exciting time for us to come and, and wave the flag in terms of our important issues. And I mentioned the infrastructure issue before, the broadband issue before. We've got some other sort of micro issues about tax-exempt status for co-ops and wanting to maintain it and making sure that the federal power assets are not sold off. We're going to take that message to Capitol Hill, and uh, we're excited to do it. Well, Jim Madison, we want to thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. Sir, it is Open Mic, and you get the last word today. Well, I just want to say how proud I am to be associated with America's Electric Cooperatives. It's, it's, it's really something to be part of a movement, and that's what I think we are. It was a movement in the 1930s when we electrified rural America, and it continues to be an important movement today in terms of acting on behalf of their consumers and the communities they serve, and that's something electric co-ops are going to continue to do. Our thanks to Jim Matheson, CEO of the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, our guest this week on The Open Bike. AgriPulse Open Bike is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly. 